everyone. I just wanted to give you a tiny preamble before we launch into today's interview with Brian Shu. Brian is somebody that I have gone to undergrad, graduate school, doctorate with. He's at this point pretty much like a brother to me. So um, that will explain a lot of the dynamic that you hear. This was recorded when we did a piano ensemble concert at Oakland University where our other friend Tian Tian teaches. And we were just sitting in the hotel room we didn't have any alcohol, surprisingly. We were very responsible adult people just uh, talking. And I think it was a lot of fun, so I hope you enjoy. We are here with Brian Shu. Brian, introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Brian. <laughs> I don't, you already well, like, just introduced me. Well, I just thought it'd be better if you did it yourself. Well, Take my, charge of your own introduction. My name is Brian Shu. <laughs> What is your title? I'm assistant professor at Loyola University in New Orleans. Um, and I guess I'm also the keyboard coordinator. Okay. I guess division coordinator. I just found out that we are actually a division instead of a department. I don't know. It's still very confusing. <laughs> well, so keyboard coordinator, what does that entail? Like, what is your job description? It means that you coordinate concerts, you discuss with technicians about what to do with the pianos in the hall, or if there are pianos that need to move from one room to another, you sort of have to approve that. Oh, you're the approval? Yes. You sign off on everything? I sign off, like, if this piano goes to this room so we can create more chairs for, you know, that. So it's like you're getting, like, the nitty-gritty stuff that you probably generally wouldn't have to if you're just teaching piano. Right. And yeah. how many students do you have this year? This semester, I have 21. That's a lot of students. Like, yeah, some of them are half hours. So it kind of adds up to still a pretty healthy amount. Yeah. It's a full load. Yeah. A little bit more than full load, which is good because they like to see that that I'm willing to do just a little bit extra. Just a little extra. Than what they're asking you to do. Well, you still perform a lot. I mean, we just had you at Garth Newell and you were playing a lot of repertoire. Yeah. You do your solo recitals if you have an album coming out. So how do you find the time to practice? I try to find, you know, when students cancel or just, or students are late for lessons, in those 10-15 minutes a lot wow. of times is kind of what you have. Or on Fridays, I try not to schedule lessons. Right. Because that's sort of my off day, which a lot of times is still not end up being your full free day because yeah. someone will schedule a meeting there because that's what works for the rest of the committee right. members. Um, and so Saturday and Sunday generally would be a safe bet that you would be free. Right. But then you sometimes you would have school concerts that you have to go. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, either some of them you really wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And some of them it will look bad if you don't go. <laughs> I mean, I'm there for seeing that I'm the only piano official piano faculty there. Any so student, the only that's, one teaching. yeah. And so anyone who's giving a piano recital, I'm teaching them. So I definitely have to, have to be there if the students are required to do a recital, or um, you know they're forced by me to do a concert. Yeah. Then I will have to be there. Right. Um, so then, and you also have a life. Like, you have a full load of things to do on your own. But yeah, I, I would like to think that I have a life. A lot of times that just kind of boils down to sitting at home with my dog watching TV. <laughs> which is very nice after a yeah. long day of teaching. And your dog is very cute. Yes, he is. <laughs> well, so that forces you to be very efficient with your practice, right? Like 10-15 minutes. 
you just kind of have to do what you need to do. 10-15 minutes are really a lot of times I use those when I'm really desperate, which I definitely did that yesterday. Because there's just there's no way I was gonna have it's hard to practice when you teach seven, eight hours straight. Of and course. you get home and then by the time you finish dinner it's about ten. You're exhausted. Yeah. You know, and so I try to practice like that every now and then when I'm again when I'm really desperate needing something to get like something needs to be learned by a particular deadline, but you're really not as, as effective at that time at 10 o'clock because yeah. within an hour you have to go to bed because tomorrow is another full day. I mean, ideally, you should be winding down for bed. Like, that's what that hour before I, is. I, ideally. <laughs> yeah, you manage what you do very well. Oh, so, thanks. Well, you know, this I is tried. the Butter Brian Up podcast. I tried. I should probably explain that. I've known Brian for a long time. How many years? 32? I guess since high school. Like we always, like yeah. we know, like we know off each other. We just never really like oh, yeah. hung out much until grad school. It's true. So like Brian and I went to school throughout pretty much all of school. Yeah. He was a few years older, but I kind of followed you around from Juilliard to Yale to Michigan with the same exact teachers, right? With few exceptions. I think oh yeah, yeah, the one for Austin. But yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of nice to have somebody who's seen you progress. Yeah, there's definitely something nice about sort of seeing someone grow as yeah. a person and as an artist. Um, I mean, I definitely, you definitely appreciate that. I think so. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the little anecdotes here and there doesn't hurt either. <laughs> oh, you know dirt on me. Well, That's you not... <laughs> have the same on me. It's true. I've seen you change a lot throughout the years. Yeah. Um, both personally and also musically. Um, and... I guess I'd, I kind of like to talk about that because when you first went into Juilliard, you had a very different impression of what your future would be like, right? Than what it turned out to be. Yeah. And how has it changed? And how have you been happier with this future? I think a lot of us change our perspectives on career and life choices as we get older um you know because of different life experiences and i think when i first started i was probably the same as everyone else well the majority of people i went to juilliard you you wanted to perform you wanted to be in the spotlight that's that's you devoted your whole life to that right it's either solo right especially i mean solo and then you start being exposed to other things like chamber music or you start being exposed to things like teaching students right. which is something that majority of the time conservatory students don't really think about i'm gonna teach people when i grow up right especially if you're like if you're 13 which is when i started right you know you don't really think about like you you went to Juilliard pre-college not to teach students that's yeah. definitely not your dream that's not a goal. That's not a goal. That's not your goal. And that's probably not your parents' goal when they send you to a place like that or any other you know, yeah. the conservatory prep program. Right. Um, but as you get older, you start, you know, because of your musical experience, because of your life experiences, and you, you meet other people on the way that are doing all these different things that's still related to music. Yeah. Um, and then you start to find sort of the rewarding aspect of, of teaching or rewarding aspect of performing with others, right? collaborating with others. And, you know, for some people, that probably still doesn't really change their opinion about what they wanted to be. And, right. and that's good for them if they wanted to just really focus on just having a solo career. But 
for me, I start questioning, you know, how, like, how much, what else can you do? Right. So sort of, ser- I guess, in a way, like, giving back or serve the community better. Exactly, yeah. Um, or, you know, sort of find your own way to, to shine on your own. Yes. Like, carving your own path, right? Yeah, and so just sort of following this cardboard pattern that that's path that's that's carved out for you right. and 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 you kind of just going through, yeah, going through, going through emotions, emotions yeah. yeah well um what you had said about your childhood and starting piano specifically is very interesting to me because it's different from what i experienced in america so yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that and also how it made you think you were going to go into a certain path like um, gave that cut out to you i started probably around I don't know sometime between five and six yeah. um and initially i started with violin that was um, your first because back then i think especially in the um this is like well this is going to tell people how i how old i actually am well you don't have to say um, specific um but year. but <laughs> i think right around the 80s in asia is, right. is when they think about violin as more like a boy instrument this is in Taiwan. Too. This is in Taiwan. And piano was sort of, at least around my circle. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the, it's funny because instruments are actually assigned a gender. That's so and weird. And so yeah. parents actually had this sort of preconceived um, idea about if you have a son, these are the choices of instruments. And if you're a, a, okay. a, a girl, these are your choices of instruments. And so it was always that piano was something they thought is for the girls okay and the violin was for the boys can can you say any more of these instruments that are gendered because i like do you want to know what instruments are assigned genders yeah well i mean you said there are specific instruments that are boy instruments so besides well, like violin, like you don't have your daughter play the cello i think i've heard that before that the cello is kind of holding it between your legs so it's, yeah like yeah. just the way you sit like that's not very ladylike but piano, you sit in a ladylike way. Yeah, I guess. And, and I guess with violin, it's like the whole violin and viola hickey. Oh, what that has something that just doesn't look. You know, it's just I don't know. I oh, mean, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good, right? It's yeah, like yeah. yeah, and then like flute is not a boy instrument. Yeah, that's definitely in America too. Um, I don't know. I mean, I would say like any of the brass instrument also is not for girls either. Yeah, especially the trumpet. Yeah, that's. It's rare to see a girl trumpet player. Yeah. Still. Um, and so those are so those those are sort of like some of the very clearly stated that well like a, I guess it's like a mutual like a understanding. Something, yeah, you yeah. just don't. So anyway, so they started you know that, but I went to the music school starting like first grade and there was a music school for first graders. It's a little different because this was in a public school setting. Um, and you know how like yeah. in in Asia it's like every year. Um, there's different classes and the teachers come to the classroom to teach instead of you go to the teachers oh, for classes. Okay. Um, so in my year, there were 12 classes and each class varies from, I don't know, 40 to 50 people in a That's classroom. That's a lot of people. Yeah. But if you go through this special musical uh, music audition, you get into the special class where they only admit 30 in the class. Oh, I see. So you're selected out. At a very young age. Yeah, so it was a public school, but our class was, we have our own sort of, I guess, our own wing. Right. And so those are like the music class kids. Okay. So instead of gym class, we have theory classes. 
Instead of gym class? Yeah. And That's so, awesome. So, you know, some of the other classes that are generally the other kids will be taking, uh, we substitute that with, like, orchestra, like, ear training. Wow. Um, which is great because, uh, I mean, why would you want six periods of gym class in a I week? I mean, think about all the time that you wasted if you were in America. Yeah, so we don't, we don't do that. I mean, academically, they require you to do all the same things. Right. But anything that's not academic, they just yeah. substitute it out for music classes. So they start with the first grade. Um, you First grade and second grade, you are not required. Maybe, I guess, let me put it this way. I mean, once, once you start a third grade, you need to start a second instrument. A second instrument already. This is public school. Yeah. Like, that's boggling that everybody in public school has the opportunity to study piano, to study violin, to study anything. Yeah. So once you start a third grade, if you already have an instrument other than... Piano is required for everyone. That's amazing. Like. But if you don't already have a second instrument, you're yeah. either assigned or you sign up for a second instrument. Okay, so you actually did start with piano. But then I already started with violin strings starting first grade. Oh, so so you do an audition. You do an audition to get into the first grade. You do another audition to get into the third grade. But since piano is required, you already knew piano as well. Yeah, but by during my first grade, I remember my first grade audition. I actually did it on the violin, not on the piano. Huh? So, well, if everyone's required to take piano, do you all have private lessons? Or do you all have private you? lessons. Uh, wow. If you already have your own teacher, then you won't be assigned one. But if you don't already have a teacher um, outside of school. Then they will either assign they will assign you someone who comes to school to teach these students. And your first outside teacher was a violin teacher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then, what made you switch to piano? Um, Besides the obvious, because pianos are bad. Well, bad too, but um, <laughs> and thank God for that. You know, my my parents always pushed me to do violin, and I just remember I wasn't really crazy about it um, right. after fourth grade. Um, and you still have to do both. I mean, you still have juries every semester, and so you're still doing yeah. all that. And I just remember talking to my mom about wanting to switch my major to piano instead of violin. And I remember my mom, I guess as a joke, not looking back, made a deal with me and said that, well, you can be a piano major if you can win this national competition. What? Well, okay. And so I did at sixth grade. I was like, well, do you remember that conversation we had? (laughs) And so you have to audition again for um, junior high school mm-hmm. at seventh grade. Okay. And so that's when I auditioned as a piano major that year. Mm-hmm. And you still have to play. I mean, the second second instrument is always required regardless of, of which grade you're in. I find that fascinating that you have such a opportunity. Like, you have to do two instruments. Yeah. I mean, you have to have ear training. You have to have theory. I think that saved me a lot of time as yeah. I get older. Um, oh, yeah. Because, I mean, ear training, I mean, if you start that when you're seven. Right. Um, and that's, I mean, the funny thing is the ear training was part of the audition. That's why you guys are always so good at theory and ear training. Like, everybody from Taiwan are, is it the same in China? Or maybe is you're it... just better at faking it. No! <laughs> okay, maybe. Maybe you were just like, oh secret spies but no i mean ear training definitely helped me a lot um and theory definitely was one of the few things i remember when i first came to the the states and didn't speak a word of english you didn't speak a word of english no when i was 13 and there were a few classes that i know i could get by other than piano was was theory class ear training and math those are like the three things (laughs) because it's the same 
Is that why a lot of Chinese people get the flack of being good at math? Because that's something that is objectively the same. Like you can count numbers. Well, also they do much harder math. Right. They did much harder math by the time I and when I got here, like the math that they were doing here in Algebra One was something we had done like five years ago. Really? Okay, maybe not five, maybe four. <laughs> I don't know, but it's like algebra is something that I think we start doing um, algebra like what in fourth grade. That's crazy. Wait, so you know, really, it's not that Chinese people are better at these subjects; it's because the training was just that much better. Well, we also have a lot more homework. I think. I mean, I don't know the American uh, education system before eighth grade because I wasn't here. Wasting time. But I feel like school definitely finished a lot earlier. They did. Well, you guys finish school at what time? Uh, probably like two thirty, three. Yeah, we don't finish school until like five thirty. Damn, it's a full day. You start at what like, time? I think seven thirty. And then you just do homework before you go to bed. And it's class nonstop. We don't have free periods. No recess. I mean, you have ten minute recess. That's not. But it's like we have forty recess. minute classes, and it's like eight periods. Yeah. Starting, I don't remember much of it, but I know when you're in fifth or sixth grade, you have eight periods in a day. So by the time you're done with school, it's like four thirty or five o'clock. Wait, so as a piano major, do you practice during those periods? No, because there's no time. Like every class, every period is filled with a class. Oh. Right, and you have to be in that classroom because the teachers come to the class to teach right. those subjects. God, butt sore is the Lord. So, when did you practice as a kid? You basically trying to find time to practice those two instruments between the hours of I don't know, like five thirty or six o'clock until ten. Jesus. And then you do your homework after. So you were sleep deprived all your childhood. Oh yeah, that was that was one thing I did not miss. <laughs> Damn, that's grueling. Well, oh, okay, so um, you made a deal with your mom. This is very different from my deal with my mom. What's uh, your deal with your? Well, I bargained with her. She wanted me to do this competition. I said, if I win, do I get a cat? And I oh, so that started a long time. Ago. Yeah, I was like very young, probably eight or nine, and then uh... she got me a stuffed cat when I won. It was a step up from dollars. She was giving me a dollar bill every time I won. Your parents give you money for that? I don't know. What it oh, was. I get it. Was like you know those little car model things. What are those called? Oh yeah. Those little yeah. <laughs> when I win a competition or something, that's what I get. I get one of those. I guess uh, I got spoiled. I got a whole dollar bill. Oh, <laughs> it's all about the money, huh? I know, right? Well, it's America. It's capitalism. So Thanks. yeah, that's. <laughs> uh, anyways, so your parents let you do a female instrument. And you won a whole bunch of competitions, and you came to America to study, right? You came at thirteen. I came at thirteen, yeah. When did you? You went to Walnut Hill. I was in Walnut Hill for only just a year. Okay. Yeah, it was like it was like the NEC prep. Yeah. Well, I see it as NEC prep. So then you got sick of it, and you you left for. Germany. Yeah, it was just a year, and it just it wasn't really working out as we had anticipated because you know I mean there's no internet back then, so any of the information you get are yeah. from students who've already studied abroad. Right. And. My, I mean, kudos to my mom. She just calls up these people yeah. who study at these schools and just ask them questions about the schools that they were at. And but you know, again, it, that's just one person's perspective. So it's like it, yeah. it's always a little bit different when you actually came here. Yeah, so many different factors. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's just it was it was definitely a little bit different than what we had anticipated. What the schools going to be like, or what the teachers going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after a year, we decided that. That wasn't really working out, so we moved to New York after that. And we is your mom and you? Yes. 
Just your mom and you. Yeah. So your dad's taking Taiwan with your brother. Yes. So that's that's a big investment as your mom to just come with you to America. Yeah, it's also a big um, risk on their part. Yeah, I mean, I he- I hear this with um, like Tianqi and her parents came here for her music. Yeah. That that's something that I think our culture would not really comprehend, like moving to a whole different country just for your kids' specialty. But that was that was pretty common. In, you don't think parents would do that here? I can't think of many American parents that would just up and leave and go to Berlin just for their kid. But maybe they would. Maybe they would. I just yeah. I guess I don't know because I mean, I grew up with a lot of people like that, and it's right. You know, most of the time, one of the at least one of the parents would come. Um, some of them, both parents would be here, but again, only only family that probably could afford to do that right. financially would do that because one of them would have to keep their jobs exactly in their home country i mean i i saw a lot of these at juilliard prep was the whole either like the mom or the dad yeah brings their kid to study here in america i mean it's definitely a, a huge sacrifice that you can't you know yeah i mean that's that's true you can't see a lot of parents probably doing that it's just that was sort accepted. of that was just sort of like what I you know the environment that I grew up in. Right. So it's like I see a lot of that. Right. I can understand. I mean, I'm not you know I'm not denying that it's not a big sacrifice, but but it I just I just see it so much of it that it becomes the norm. Right, and it was the norm. I yeah, mean, at least from what I could tell. Yeah. So to do that required like it kind of put a lot of pressure on you, right? It definitely forces you to. I mean, I guess. For lack of a better way to describe it, it kind of forced you to grow up a little bit quicker. I think so, yeah. Because there's a lot riding on you. Like, your whole, I mean, you're not so young that you understand what the whole family is doing for something that you want to do. Right. And so there's always that thought in the back of your mind that you don't want to let them down or disappoint them. Exactly. But, you know, luckily, luckily I picked something that I actually end up liking to do. Yeah. And you, you once said to me you used to love practicing. I do. And I, and I probably still do like to do that when I have the time. Because those are, you know, and I always tell my students that it's like, these are the best years of your lives to just, you don't really have a lot of worries. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you might think you're very stressed out. You have all these to worry about. But I always tell them that once you graduate from school, there's, yeah, you have way less time to do what you wanted to do. Because when yeah. you, once you have a full-time job, it's not quite the same as just being a full-time student. Yeah, exactly. Like, we just talked about that at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. What time you have to practice. And that's, like, time you need to do yeah. what you do. Yeah. And it just it's funny because these are the things that people used to tell me when I was younger. You and I just, like, didn't me. believe. I'm just like, yeah. oh, yeah, no, that's, no, that's not true. I don't have time. I'm like, oh, no, they're right. Yeah. But, well, so then you went to Juilliard Prep for... I three years. Three years. Yeah. Um, and then you went to Juilliard for a while. Four and then master's. So, yeah, it's about a total of nine years. It's a long time at Juilliard. And then you went to Yale. What? You were there probably just I about was, as and long. I, I could not wait to get the fuck out of there. Like, How long were you there for? Uh, from 15, I did prep for three years, and then I was there for undergrad. But I didn't do master's. Oh, so you're actually there shorter than I have. Yeah. Um, For some reason, I always thought you were there like longer. Well, I was always kind of two years behind you in any school, right? Yeah, but I just thought you like somehow started Juilliard Prep already when I started. No, I think I was a couple years after you and Dad. Oh, uh, okay. 
But you were always the cool kid running around with the cool crowd. I was just, I was just loud. <laughs> I was like, oh, that Brian person, he's too cool for me. Well, I think I definitely made up because I didn't really socialize with a lot of students when I was in pre-college. Oh, yeah. It was just like, it was very focused. And I think once I started college, freshman year living in the dorms definitely opened a lot of social doors for me. Yeah. Um, and also, our class was very close. Yeah, that's right. For a short period of time. And so we would all, we would all eat together. We would all go practice. And we all like pick the practice from like, like next to each other. Really? Um, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice. very, it's a very friendly, competitive crowd. Yeah. Like, we're all very friendly, we're all very supportive, but at the same time, we're also extremely competitive with one another. But it was a good thing, because you kind but, of kept yeah, it going. I think I got lucky with that. Because you definitely, it, it, it yeah. definitely, because when you, you know, when you're about to take a break, and then hear someone practicing next door, <laughs> you're not going to stop. Jayo. You know, so. Yeah. Um, or, but on the, on the flip side somebody can kind of just interrupt you if they wanted to we definitely had done enough of that but yeah. considering how much time we spend in the practice rooms like practice a little a little 20 30 minute throughout the like for the whole day of interruption is really not a lot yeah you know if you spend like seven eight hours in the practice room <laughs> because we basically live there that's right you would eat there I yeah think. because we would like get food because we don't want to lose our practice oh, room. Right. so we would like get food and eat outside of our rooms. Yeah, well, good for you for eating outside your rooms because I've been in those practice rooms when there's the funk, the musty funk of oh, Chinese. Oh yeah, food. no, we don't. I mean, I definitely have. I've been guilty of eating while I practice with one hand, right? No, I mean, you just like you know, you put food in your mouth and while you chew, you like practice. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, I definitely have done that. Yeah. But there are times when you wanted to quote unquote relax a little bit. <laughs> You go to Balducci's and you get food. Oh, Balducci's! And then you just like sit outside and you just park, and that's that's actually happened a few times. I think I think some people definitely got annoyed with us doing that a lot. Well, because they'd hear you talking and having. A because they would go down the hallway trying to find a practice room, and we're all just like sitting in front of our rooms talking to each other while eating. Oh yeah, yeah. You see, so it's like a lot of times it's not just like two people doing that; it'll be like five of us. Yeah, they're like can you like yelling across the hall. <laughs> you know, we all do obnoxious things when we were younger. Okay, well, I do want to switch the subject a little bit because okay. um, you were talking about your upcoming album that you're working on right now. Yeah. Love for you to talk about your concept of who the album is meant for. Like, a lot of people release classical albums for classical music lovers, but you're kind of hoping to reach a different crowd. Yeah. Some of that sort of came from. Was there like a follow up question? No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Did I just cut you off? You can cut me off. I do it all the time with other people. I'm trying not to do that. It's oh a bad habit. Um, that kind of goes with my interest of programming to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. It's about sort of like how we find ways to attract audience. Yeah, Since, it's a big question. I think this has been going on for a while and... and Partially, it's true. Partially, it really isn't. But you know, we we were talking about how like the audience is dying for the classical music. So you try to find true. ways. You yeah. find ways to make things more interesting. Right. And I sort of start going down that path when I was doing my doctorate at Michigan. I guess my mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. And so that that's kind of how I mean. The first time I did that was when I did the four ballads and the four scherzos in the recital program. Yeah, I remember because that. Because I figured that's there. not done a lot. 
I think from there, I started sort of trying to always find ways to come up with a recital program where I like to introduce new compositions, but I don't go as far as, I guess, you know, like like someone like you, you would do like more like the commission, like the really, really new works. Yeah. Um, I kind of like to find stuff that people don't play much. That's that also are from yeah. So it's more like familiar composer, but unfamiliar works kind of started with it kind of went into that direction a little bit mm-hmm. and from there somehow it morphed into sort of realizing this fascination that i have with transcriptions in general and that morphed into opera transcriptions right. so it's kind of just keep narrowing down to a particular area this album is it's, it's opera transcriptions but instead of just doing a bunch of transcriptions that people know right um i have two of them that are more well known like the two list transcriptions right the, which are the rigoletto and the don giovanni right but then i decided that in the first half of the program well this is when i was doing the re- this as a recital um i decided right. to find transcriptions that are not being played as much right and one of my colleagues that I met in the summer gave me the CD of Zhongyi Thibode playing, uh, I guess the CD called Opera Without Words. Okay. And so he played a couple of transcriptions by this guy, Ivar Mikashov. I'm still not completely sure I if I'm saying that right. I think people know who you're talking about, yeah. Um. So there was a Modern Butterfly transcription. And then there was a transcription from Tosca. Uh-huh. And then another one from Bellini, uh, Norma, uh-huh. but it's taken from a different theme than the list Norma that right. most people know. Yeah. Um, and so, so I kind of put these together as, um, and there's also a Strauss transcription that's also a lesser known of the sort of Viennese waltz. Right. But it's the version that people are not as familiar with. Right. And that just got. It was received very well by audience when I take it somewhere else. And I, I started to talk to audience afterwards. And many of them are students that are not even piano majors. And they show up because it was something that they didn't know. Right. Uh, but they know the operas. Right. And so that kind of gave me this confidence of that this per- these, this idea would actually work. Because right. you, you sort of pulling people in with the works that they might know, but they don't know how it's going to be done. Right. You've hit on a point that I think a lot of people are latching onto now, is that in one art form, you're pulling what people understand of that art form, and then you're introducing them to things they are not quite familiar with. Yeah. And their knowledge, their previous knowledge, will help them understand what they think they might not understand. And yeah. a lot of people don't think they would enjoy a classical music concert just on its own. Yeah, They think they maybe they don't have the education for it or yeah. that it's just too esoteric for them or whatever. Um, and that's really not the case. It's really not true, right? And I think what you're doing is giving them a familiarity and then allowing them to discover something that they wouldn't have before. Yeah, and also I think it just, it, it sort of shed a different light on 
what is doable in the recital. It doesn't just have to be quote unquote original works for piano. Right. You know, like the typical sonata and, and things like that. Exactly. Um, because I just remember when I first mentioned this program to someone, I say I'm doing a, a program of opera transcriptions, and people immediately just say, oh, so it's going to be an old list program. I was like, actually, it's not. Right. You know, and I started mentioning these, and they're like, oh, I don't know these pieces. I was like, well, come to the concert, and you will, you know, you will hear it. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think it's just, it's a nice way to sort of break away from, and actually, it's funny because I put these in, in one of the, the proposals that I put in for a program that sort of growing up in a conservatory setting and because of the school auditions, you're always taught yeah. the standard, the Baroque, the classical, the romantic, you know, the, the four periods that you need for auditions. And yeah. these are the standard pieces you play for auditions. And so those are the yeah, pieces yeah. that you hear. Yeah. And then outside of that, you don't. You, you, in a way, you almost have you get this attitude sort of looking down on piano like transcriptions right. because it's not a serious work. It's not a masterwork. It's right? not a masterwork, but you know, if you really look into it, in order to understand an opera transcription, in order to actually play it well, you actually have to watch the opera. You have exactly. to know you have to know what the opera is about. Yeah. Which is you know, there's more work involved than just there's the work by, you know, Beethoven. Not that there's not a lot of work be involved in that. that. Yeah. yeah, and also it's just it's more interesting for you as well. I think so. Like the research is very comprehensive, actually, and forces you to look outside of just piano. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, the standard canon for piano for pianists it's, it's actually really aggravating to always see that program time after time. Yeah, because it just you get you get sick of it. I mean, you know, it's. They are great pieces, don't get me wrong. I still right. like to play them every now and then. Right. But it just, it it gets it gets a little old. And I think that um, the standard canon for a pianist, we always struggle with that problem, is that people still go to concerts to hear familiarity. This is something that probably launched into the conversation we had at Garth Neal, was that I always want to have new music on there, because that's yeah. what I love, but... In order to think about ticket sales, which is like, as a nonprofit, you have to think about ticket yeah. sales. Um, you have to put in something they know. So with a Brahms piano quartet, then I could do like a 10-minute new piece. Yeah. But that's that's how we all have to think in a way is that we want to attract new audiences. but And we want to expand, test and challenge the audience's mind. But we also want to get them there. And so... Yeah. I, think it's just, I think it's just a simple business sort of... I don't know what they would call that in business Model? school. You know, I mean, it's hard to change. Yeah. Like people people don't really like change or drastic change. And so you kind of have to be smart about how you sort of reel them in. Exactly. And then you introduce something in the middle of it. And yeah. so, so that way you're not just, you know, presenting a 60 minutes of all new compositions because some people would just walk away and be like i don't know what this is or like i don't like the sound of it but if you just have a 10 minute piece like you said a 10 minute piece in a 60 minute program then the worst case scenario is the audience gonna think well i just have to sit through this 10 minutes which a lot of times by the end of that 10 minutes they're like oh yeah i can't tell you how many that's not bad somebody has come up and be like i never knew that i would like this and i loved it and it's just like well yeah, that's why we do it this way. And I mean, it's just the sad fact of consumerism is that you have to appease that familiarity. Yeah. But I think it's also nice to have that balance, too. I mean, especially, I think for me, I, I do... 
I like the balance of just the familiarity with the unfamiliarity. Right. That's a long, hard word to say. It's a tongue twister. Yeah. <laughs> you just like gag it's it like out. For me, for me, I think preparing for a concert, I, 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 do, I sometimes do like playing pieces that I know well by ear. Right. Um, and that you sort of, I don't know, it's just, I like the balance of it. Right. Well, I think you've hit on something else is that you like to challenge yourself, but you also like to take yeah. the skills that you've done. In a, in a way, as a pianist, you kind of encompass a lot more than one would expect. Like, you don't just do solo, you do a lot of chamber and a lot of different type of collaboration, right? Like, you said you're doing I a like vocal recital. With, yeah, I like to play with people on stage. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's less lonely. It's That's for sure. Um, it's definitely more like a group thing. And so it's it's always it's more like a social event rather than like... Right. You know, so, so they're just... They're just definitely... There's definitely more, you have maybe a little bit less control because it's not just right. you. But, but that's it, actually a good thing. But at the cases. same time, yeah, there's more variation or right. there's more things that could happen on stage. But then it's fun because it's almost like you're conversing with someone on stage. I'm going to keep you to this when we play tomorrow. Uh-huh. So uh... what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, how many times have you told me that you'll kill me if I take that tempo? More times than I should. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think it's true, is that you learn so much more when you play with other people. I mean, yeah. and this is the thing, um, this is the reason I like you, and it's also why I Aww. like playing with you. I don't like playing with pianists that often, but... Um, I know, you made that very clear. Did I? I really? Mean, you've said that so many times. No, but the thing is, is that... But I feel honored. I like playing with Brian, because Brian is different from me in a good way. Why, because I yell at you? No, because you're... <laughs> Stop playing <laughs> so fast. <laughs> He's like, well, but then you te- you sent me a text two days ago of your practicing things at a very fast tempo just to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I did. What was the word? I think we actually took that tempo. The as fast as possible? The first time around today. First time around, yeah. and I was thinking to myself, I am so glad I did this two days ago. <laughs> Where? Well, I'm hoping tomorrow will be, you know, much better. I think it would. It better be. Fucking third time you've played it. Wait, so So. worst case scenario, what? We're going to like, we're going to do it again somewhere? We'll do it again somewhere. We'll do it until we get it right. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I can play that piece forever. We can just keep writing people and say, Dad, do you want to hear the Rachmaninoff second suite? You're like, hell yeah. Well, that ends part one. Stay tuned next week for part two. And uh, check us out on iTunes, So Many Wrong Notes. And also, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. All at So Many Wrong Notes, except for Twitter, that has no S at the end.